Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Today, Charles and I are going to discuss a book that we both think is extremely important for people to read. The author is Sean Mathis, and the title is, Is the Church Pro-Gay? With a subtitle, How to Respond to a Moral Crisis with God's Love. Now, Charles, you know the author, so share with our listeners who he is and why you suggested that I read this book. Well, I think it's probably more, somewhat more accurate to say I know of him. Uh, I have participated in uh, Zoom conferences that he has hosted, and we've chatted by phone at least once or twice. He's an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor in the Denver area and has been a keen observer of the issue of the rise of pro-sodomite, pro-homosexual sensibilities in evangelical churches. And he wrote this book about a year ago or so, and it was just published a few months ago, and he did quite a lot of uh, encouraging people to buy it and download the various uh, the PDF and e-copy, and I have to say it is um, a tour de force in many ways. He, he's packed a huge amount of material in the space of, let's see, a little over 280 pages, and it's a real eye-opener for a lot of different reasons. I mean, we know there are churches and denominations that are pro-homosexual. You know, the mainline Protestants, uh, the Roman Catholic Church increasingly. So this this is not so much what that's about. They, they, he does discuss how some of the, ch- the churches like that and the mainline churches have become that way. But he's far more concerned about the direction of so-called evangelical and even reformed churches. Right. So uh, yeah. Right. So, so without giving a book report, because anytime we highlight a book, we don't want to say, okay, we'll tell you about it. You don't have to read it. We want people to read it. You gave the page count. A good portion of that page count gives a very heavily footnoted book and gives resources in terms of other things that the author thinks that people should read. But last week, you and I discussed the idea of spotting wolves in sheep's clothing. And as I got to the end of the book, he brings up that very point, which leads me to the question we're going to discuss today. Are Christians being groomed to accept sin as normal? Well, yes, but I think that this has been going on for a long time in various shades. You know, the challenge we face, let me just put this out there, is that the sins such as homosexuality, adultery, whatever, you know, sort of the big ticket sins that everybody's familiar with, abortion, murder, those are easy to spot. But the church and Christians were long ago groomed to accept other types of sinful activity that are perhaps not quite so obvious, such as uh, granting uh, or claiming to agree with the pretended sovereign authority of the state. You know, that's one that Christians don't often think about, but we're not, we're not talking about that right now. Right. In terms of this particular issue, one might well wonder where you have denominations and churches and con- connections of churches that in some cases actually were formed within the past century or less as a reaction against compromise on moral and social and doctrinal issues that now themselves are drifting in the very direction that they were trying to get away from. How in the world could that happen? Well, uh, it did not happen overnight, of course. And I think there are a lot of different streams that lead into this. Now, I don't know that Mathis covers all of these points in in his book or not, but that doesn't matter. Some years ago, a book was written, and and the title I I have forgotten, but it had to do with the the feminist influence in churches. And this goes back, this book was probably written 20 or 30 years ago. You know, we're not talking about churches, your local evangelical church, having a, a book study of you know, Gloria Steinem or Bella Abzug or somebody like that, uh, or some famous feminist uh, manifesto. Uh, we're talking about churches that de facto have become dominated by a feminist or feminine attitude. And we're not talking about, you know, godly women. We're just talking about an attitude that is antithetical to the model given to us in Holy Scripture. But 
that didn't that's not something that happened really in the 20th century it dates back much further than that but we've seen it sort of snowball now in the past 50 years right so from my point of view as i was reading the book because it it first of all i do believe people should read it because he goes into detail in terms of misconceptions that most people have in terms of the homosexual lifestyle, which we'll get to a little bit later in this discussion. But why is it, and we talked about it last week a little bit, why is it so hard to spot the wolves in sheep's clothing? Well, I think the general and obvious answer is antinomianism. If you read the Bible and you don't read it from the point of view that every word, every word proceeds out of the mouth of God and that he's not a liar, but men are likely and often liars, then what happens is you start taking the Bible, you don't throw it out entirely, but you add the idea, but we know that. Okay, so if you look at the scripture, specifically the Ten Commandments, there are many of the commandments that what we would call the second table of the law on how we are to deal with each other in a godly way. And homosexuality in any form, biblically, in thought, word, or deed, is considered sinful. However, modern culture, and sadly, even those within the church, somehow make an exception to this. So it used to be understood that sin can occur in thought, word, or deed. Nowadays, we just have somewhat relegated it to, well, do people do a particular act? Does this body part end up in another person's body part? I'm not trying to be crude, but we have just made action as opposed to thought and speech something that we have to be concerned about. And currently within church circles, and he brings this out in the book, there are those who are willing to say, yes, a homosexual act is wrong, However, talking about it positively and even having this desire in your heart is not sin. And that is antinomian. Would you not agree? Yes, absolutely. And I think there's another side to this that goes right along with the uh, antinomian attitude of many people. And that is uh, sort of the Martianite idea that you've got two different gods represented in Scripture. You've got the mean old God of the Older Testament and the loving hippie Jesus of the New Testament who loves everybody and passes out flowers to everyone. There's something about that that I think is involved in this because one of the things that he brings out in that this book is one of the ways that the wolves in sheep's clothing make headway in the churches is the idea that we don't want to be unloving. And in many cases, the pathway toward compromise on this issue has to do with someone who has a relative who has become or is homosexual or someone who knows someone very, uh, very good terms with them. And maybe that person is struggling with some issue relating to their homosexuality. And, the, and so sympathy is, is built up for that person in that situation. That, that has become the great mallet with which the church has been hammered is that, oh, you're being unloving. These people need concern, care. And that's not to say that. People don't need to be given the benefit of the doubt in some circumstances, and no matter what a person may be struggling with, no one likes to see others suffer or uh, dealing with hurtful and harmful situations. And people who get themselves especially into profoundly difficult circumstances because of their actions, it is a horrible thing, uh, a pitiful thing to see somebody having to deal with that. But the solution and, and the pathway to help is not denying what God's almighty word says. That's what led to the problem to begin with. So this is a key point that the denial of the abiding validity of the law word of God is a pathway to compromise, and it leads us away from the solution. Uh, and, and we've become so desensitized to what God's word actually says, and we've become so enculturated into the modern corruptions in, 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 uh, of our, I'll call it, civil religion. I'll just put it this way. The means by which God has ordained that there be population control for criminals, if you deny it, then you're going to have an explosion of a criminal population. 
And it may not be pleasant to have to understand that God says, this is what's the way. But from God's standpoint, the thing that leads a person into this difficulty is equally heinous and repulsive. And so it maybe sounds flippant or too easy to say it, but essentially it's the choice. You either do it God's way or you're going to pursue Satan's way, man's way, and you'll deal with the consequences on either side. And sadly, you brought up the prison system. So for those who might not remember or ever know what Charles was referring to, there is no prison system outlined in Scripture. There is a period of time where someone's offense is adjudicated, and if that person is found guilty, there are only three ways that crimes are dealt with, either through the death penalty— and those would be severe crimes, specifically crimes against the family. That's the only treason that the scripture knows. Restitution, in other words, you steal something, you damage something, and you're required to make amends for that. And that might happen with you have the resources, or it might happen that you have to be an indentured servant until you can. And then there's some offenses that were dealt with with stripes, with with being um, lashes, and there was a limit to that. So scripture knows nothing of the prison system. And sadly, many people who are in prison today are not in prison because they violated God's law. They're in prison because they violated statute law or, or man-made law. Okay. But we've talked about that in the past. The point is we have been groomed. And I use the word specifically to normalize deviant lifestyle choices. So the advent of the talking picture and then television and then the popularization of music that talks about and discusses things that shouldn't you shouldn't be proud of, but now that's what it is, has made us think that, okay, so how could homosexuality be that bad when we've got movies where the hero was fornicating or was an adulterer or w- whatever it is? In other words, instead of having the check that says, wait a minute, how could we call this entertainment? That person is sinning. Why are we watching sin and going, oh, isn't this wonderful, right? So we've been groomed to say, okay, that's no big deal. That's been going on for a very long time. And one of the things that happened with homosexuality was to act as though homosexual relations are the same thing as a committed marital relation. Well, wait a minute. We see lots of things depicted in the media where we have people engaging in intimacy who aren't married. But you know what? They still love each other. Well, really? Is that a biblical love? That the man loves the woman so much that he's not willing to commit it to be committed to her exclusively till he dies? Right? So when we start changing God's word to make it like, well, you know, this is the way things are. And we try to teach our children, yes, I know you see this in the culture, but you're not supposed to do this. Why are they not going to ask, why am I not supposed to do this? Well, instead of saying, you know what? What those two people are doing, whether it's a man and a woman in an uncommitted relationship or two homosexuals in any sort of relationship that involves intimacy and sexuality, is they hate each other. And homosexual interaction is not the same and Sean Mathis does a very good job of discussing what quote unquote homosexual love is really all about. And most people, I would say people in the church, Charles, would be horrified to go, that's what we said was the same as marriage between a man and a woman? Not so. Yeah, I think that's another important issue. And that is when we deal with the mechanics, I'll put it that way, and you kind of vaguely referred to that uh, moments ago, when when we talk about, quote, our gay friends or, you know, gay people this and, uh, you know, we, we I mean, the, the very co-opting of that word uh, to describe uh, people who practice homosexuality is, is a travesty as it is, and it is a cultural surrender. If anything, uh, it's probably just the opposite if, if we would know the reality of people living that lifestyle, no matter how well tolerated it may be from their standpoint. And I think even people who 
uh, would consider themselves very sympathetic, if not open and uh, affirming of this type of activity, they don't want to know anything about what really happens in a homosexual sexual encounter, you know, whether it be a so-called committed one or one in, in a bathhouse uh, in the Castro district, you know, it, because it is repulsive. There, there's an, an, an innate repulsion to it. And um, I mean, that's one part of it. But, you know, the, the other part of it is the way that an effeminate attitude has penetrated society and captured especially men in the modern age and modern times. I'd, I'd like to call our listeners' attention to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, but before I read this passage, there's something much more foundational and fundamental to this discussion, and it, it can apply to any number of things that we've talked about or will talk about. And that is that Christians who claim to believe, believe the Bible, who claim to believe in the sovereignty of God, we need to get serious. We need to ask ourselves, do we really believe this? If, if we really believe that Holy Scripture is the divine law word of God, that it is inerrant in all that it teaches and, and it is infallible, then there's no part of it that we can just simply brush off as, oh, well, you know, that comes from a, a pre-civilized era. Oh, you know, those people, they had a different culture. And so naturally they, no, no, no. Uh, either we affirm the whole word of God or we are denying it at some point in which you might as well deny the whole of it. But in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Paul says these words, and I, I'm going to read this from a couple of different translations. In the New King James Version, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And, you know, he, he goes on from there into um, the next verse, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a laundry list of sinful activities that Paul decries and flat out says people who practice this, who live in this way, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what's interesting is that the New King James Version, at least, obscures the meaning of one of those Greek words that many of the other translations nail it perfectly. And that is a, a Greek term that in almost all others, for example, in the American Standard Version, he says, be not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with men. So th the word translated there as effeminate has been glossed over in some more modern translations, not all of them, thankfully, to highlight the fact that Paul is not simply talking about the, the physical activity involved in sodomite uh, lifestyle. But the very nature, the, the very way a man might carry himself that lends itself to someone being in that kind of circumstance. You made a, a mention a moment ago concerning the culture and music. I, you were something you were saying about that. And uh, I want to reference uh, another book. I, I don't want to get into too many book reviews or book discussions, but um, there was a book written some years ago called The Grace of Shame. And it says seven ways the church has failed to love homosexuals. A very similar theme to Sean Mathis's book. But in this book, the author refers to a quote from a gay writer who was writing concerning the death of the rock star David Bowie. Now, many of our listeners may know that Bowie sort of uh, pioneered a gay look and style in his music. At least sometimes he did, sometimes he didn't. And this writer who identified as gay was trying to deal with that and figure out, well, what's, what was this guy's story, really? And he makes an interesting observation. And quoting him here, he says, I believe that cultural gayness is something that can and does exist apart from homosexuality. Gays may have developed the set of cultural practices that defines gayness or what some call the gay sensibility or gay aesthetics, but they need not be its only practitioners. Indeed, straight people, or whatever Bowie might have been, are theoretically just as capable of doing cultural gayness as gays are, and indeed, some may do it better. Wow. Isn't that interesting? And I think this is exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 6-9, because in Roman society, this was a thing, as we say nowadays. Yes. And for anybody who actually has been an observer and had the opportunity, I realize not everybody lives in a place like I do where certain lifestyles are not only promoted, but they're in your face and almost to the point where 
the person is looking for a reaction so you can be condemned for it. But when people talk about the effeminacy of homosexuality, in no way are those men acting like women because that's not how women act. So effeminacy is not the same thing as being female. And the fact that it had been equated, oh, that person just identifies more as a woman, certainly led us to the fact of transgenderism, because as the expression goes, once the camel's nose is under the tent, all the camel has to do is stand up and there goes the tent. So when we've stopped defining things the way the scripture defines it, as you pointed out in that passage, then we we come into thinking that there are things that are fuzzy definitions. Well, let me tell you, prostitution is not the same as marriage. Fornication is not the same as marriage. And when we get into a discussion of, are you, you know, is this five-year-old a heterosexual or homosexual? This five-year-old is neither one. If this five-year-old is blessed by God to be in a Christian family, this five-year-old will learn that only a committed relationship under God between a man and a woman is what marriage is. So we can't talk about homosexual marriage without even violating the clear tenets of Scripture. Would we talk about axe murderer marriage? Would we talk about wife abuser You know, in other words, if we're going to say this is okay, well, what if, you know, a man married to a woman, it just, he just kind of feels led to beat her up. You know, we got to love him. We've got to accept him. Really? Is that what Jesus preached? Did Jesus say, if you love me, bring everybody in and tell them whatever they're doing is fine? No, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How sad it is, Charles, that people say they love God, but if you ask them commandments like prison system or homosexuality or effeminism or whatever it is, they'll go, I don't know about that. All I know is I love Jesus. Well, I hate to say this because it might hurt. They don't love Jesus. They love something in their imagination that they're calling Jesus. Yeah, it's the... uh the fake Jesus, the heretical Jesus of some of the early heretical movements in the church and even with us today, the Jesus who never condemns anyone, you know, the Jesus that is all loving and unconditionally forgiving everybody and everything. I referred a few podcasts ago to my preaching from John chapter eight and the story of the woman caught in adultery. Yes, he said, "I, I don't condemn you, but he also said, go and sin no more. And, you know, one of the things that Mathis does in this book that is is very effective, I think, and you just referred to it, is that if you, you know, take the standard statement in many of these churches that have become more uh, gay-friendly and gay-type uh, open churches, pro-gay churches, if if you substitute any other term besides gay or homosexual in that list or that attitude, then it becomes patently obvious that you've got a serious issue. And you, there's no justification why, like you said, I, a man wants to beat his wife. Someone has, I have murder in my heart. You know, I, I really struggle with the fact that I want to kill everybody here today, but you know, I'm struggling with it. I'm just asking you to affirm me in my struggle. You know, it's that kind of ridiculous sounding thing, but that's what it amounts to. And I would invite our listeners to just read first Corinthians six, nine and 10. And Paul, it's important to note, and, and we understand Paul is not isolating effeminacy and homosexuality as the only things that will deny a person inheritance in the kingdom of God if they persist in that lifestyle. But there may be adultery, idolatry, thieves, murderers, all of these terms are in that list. So and the next time you read of some church or denomination that's starting down the path of being pro-gay, just substitute one of those terms in their popular slogans and you'll see no, no, no. This this doesn't make sense in, in just about any kind of uh, moral system, leave alone that of God Almighty. So I, I think it's worth asking, too, and he gets into this in the book, is how some denominations, uh, and I'll mention the one that my, I and my church used to be a part of, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, this is what really generated a lot of these things, is that there there have been congregation sessions 
unfortunately, even a few presbyteries that have been more sympathetic to this idea of affirming people who are gay in their inclinations. And they come up with the side A and side B that you can be a homosexual in your tendency, but you live a celibate life and therefore you're just like anybody else, only you prefer to love the, the same sex uh, rather than what God has ordained. And that, too, has been an open door that eventually leads to affirming all-out, full, total homosexual activity. And I like the fact that you brought up that aside from the effeminacy and the homos- or the sodomy, because the sodomy would be the act and effeminacy would be the tendency, that you brought up the other things – the reason that people are told, well, you know, we're all sinners. That's just one sin among many. Well, really? So they don't have a problem with thieves? Well, I, you know, you live in a statist economy where your money is taken from you by terrible taxation and inflation. Well, we accept that. Oh, women go in and kill their children. But oh, no, 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 no. I'm pro-life, but I can't call them murderers because that would be so cruel. So we've already compromised those sins by having wiggle room. Oh, yes, the abortionist is the bad guy, and I wouldn't disagree. But unless somebody is dragged and forced and held down against her will, she was a participant. And she should recognize herself as a participant, right? But so we fudged on those things. So we say, you know what? We're all sinners. Who am I to judge? Well, we're supposed to judge righteous judgments. And if you're giving wiggle room to something that God says is worthy of death, please don't pretend that you love this person who's driving off a cliff and you're smiling and waving saying, I wouldn't want to tell him he's a bad driver, right? It's it's ridiculous, but it's also sinful to not recognize that there are some sins that are harder and more difficult to deal with than others. And if you can't make that differentiation, and I'm not talking about the Catholic venial sins as opposed to mortal sins, the tendency to lie is not the same as the sins of adultery, and homosexuality. I'm sorry. It's not the same because the ramifications, not that God's going to bless you for that, but a society that embraces homosexuality looks a lot more like Sodom and Gomorrah than it does the New Jerusalem. And so when people are trying to defend, well, these two men love each other and they get married. And oh, by the way, they're also conservative, blah, blah, blah. I would like the question, Tell me how you're honoring God's law by your lifestyle. And please give me scriptural references to back it up. There aren't any. And until we're willing to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, we're not living our lives with the example Christ gave us. Well, and I think that gets to the heart of how there has been such cultural decline on this particular issue, because there are some people who have been convinced that scripture is not worthy to be followed on this point, and there is a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation. I, I mean, when I was in seminary, I've, I attended several seminaries, and one in particular had, I would say, sort of a mixed faculty. There were people who went to that seminary because it was convenient, it, it was less expensive, but they were some of them were in mainline Protestant denominations. And so there were one or two professors at that seminary that were part of that movement. And I've sat in classes with some of these people. And I mean, it's astounding how they can take the clear teachings of scripture and reinterpret them and warp them and twist them like you're doing yoga with them uh, to have them say something they don't say at all. But the, the foundational premise of all of that is that God has not spoken infallibly and inerrantly in his inscripturated written word. And so therefore it's subject to man's thoughts and man's feelings. And Sadly, for people who are caught up in the sin of sodomy and effeminacy, society, Christian society, long ago began to go down this path of betraying them to the idea that they're they're okay. I, I can remember decades and decades ago, long before we got to the place where we are now, uh, I knew people who were said to be, in some cases I knew to be, homosexual. There were known places in the city where I grew up, the capital city of the state where I live, where it was known that homosexuals hung out 
Uh, there were clubs rumored to be places where they could go. And I'm talking about, you know, in the mid-1960s in a very conservative part of the country, not like San Francisco or Chicago or someplace like that. So these things have always been around. But what has not always been around, at least in uh, the society in which we live, is the idea that there's oh, everything okay. This is fine. There's nothing wrong with this. This is just a, what do you want to call it, an alternate lifestyle or whatever. And again, we go back to the example we talked about earlier. If you want to see how absurd this is, just substitute one of these other sinful activities and start saying, oh, that it's misunderstood. We need to give a space for people to be better murderers, to be better adulterers. It, it, it boggles the mind how we could have done this. But again, it, it's playing on the sympathies of people. And now you correct me if I'm wrong. I'm certainly open to that. But I think this is an example of a, of a feminist and effeminate influence in the church in particular and in families in particular, where for whatever reason, men began to abdicate their authority as godly men. Either they were shamed into thinking there was something wrong with them, maybe, or they didn't fulfill their roles as men. Maybe they forsook their families to, you know, work all the time, whatever it may be. But at a certain point, and some people date it back to the middle of the 1800s, there was a, a resurgence or a, an empowerment of women and, and a, a, a feminist attitude in the church. Some of it was related to abolitionism you know, leading up to the time of the war between the states. And a lot of the people who were leaders of that kind of move, movement were female. So it's, it's not an attack against women to say this. It's an attack against godly men who advocated their authority and the maintaining of the standards of God's law, you know, as a solid, unwavering word that, you know, some sort of misplaced sympathy is not appropriate here because you're, you're going to be damning the person to something far worse than just momentarily relieving them of the consequences of their sins. No, exactly. It's also interesting that the whole eschatology of the rapture started with a woman and people following i think it's always good to go back to the garden of eden why don't we call it the sin of eve Mm -hmm. why do we call it the sin of adam well number one the bible calls it the sin of adam his role was to protect and cover and he did not he not only didn't protect and cover her right he went along with her and guess what it was easier to blame her. So why are men so pro-abortion in this country, a lot of them? Well, because then they don't have to have the expense of raising the kid. And nine times out of 10, you pay for that lady's abortion or you encourage her to have an abortion, you don't end up marrying her. So this retreat from authority, this revolt against maturity is all about Buying an easier program, you can be as gods determining for yourself right and wrong. And so, you know, when you're making the whole litany of sins, you know, I have friends who are gay. Yeah, I have friends who are cannibals. I have friends who are arsonists. I have friends who are pedophiles. Let's just glorify all the sins. Oh, well, wait a minute. We're not going to glorify those sins. Well, as I was telling the class I teach of young people, when I was growing up, and that's not that long ago, no such thing as gay pride parades. No such thing as saying, first of all, the, the term gay wasn't even, the, the word queer then was like, oh, that's an insult. Don't call somebody queer. Now they call themselves queer. The point is, it just takes a matter of time become, before we're desensitized. And I'll give you a really good example of how the church has been influenced. Not too long ago, sometime in the middle, late last year, a church that I had been attending brought in a man to talk about his ministry. And it wasn't until at least the third of the way into his sermon that we found out that he used to be a homosexual. Now he's married and he has children. Okay, it might have been a useful thing to tell people that at the beginning, but he did not. And then he made this amazing statement. He said, you don't know how hard it is. I have to deal with this temptation all the time, Hmm. all the time. And, you know, and everybody at different points will clap for him. And he goes, and yes, I I have to confess to my wife. I still fight, you know, and I thought, why is this man in ministry? This man still needs to come to a full orbed understanding of the faith. 
But you know what? At the end of the service, he sold lots of his books and everything else. Here's a man struggling. Okay. We have turned our society that if you're struggling, somehow that's a good thing. Well, maybe King Saul struggled with his envy, his jealousy, his anger. But every time he struggled and then he acted upon it, we correctly view it as he was sinning against God. We are more concerned as a society now to not offend the homosexual than we are to not offend God. Yes, and that gets to the heart of what I said a moment ago in that we are not doing any person favor who readily confesses or uh, promotes that they are inclined to a certain type of behavior that God's law says is not to be tolerated, not to be practiced or uh, followed. And we say, well, that's fine. You know, that's just your lifestyle. And to say, as you mentioned, that speaker said that this is something they are continuing to struggle with every day. See, you know, the, the, the way that this has been promoted in so-called evangelical churches is that that's a legitimate thing. This is the way God made them. And so they struggle with this. And therefore, that we have to create this special category of Christian. You know, you've got uh, Protestant Christian, Catholic Christian, Italian, Polish Christian, Scots-Irish Christian. Oh, and we've got gay-inclined Christian. You know, the, the categories don't fit. Now, let me ask you something, um, Andrea. And um, it's not a trick question, but, you know, it gets to the, the, the point, I think, of one thing that we're talking about here. If someone is guilty of adultery, does that guilt, does that act of adultery start when the adulterer gets in bed with someone other than their spouse? No, not at all. And, and the same here, you see, with this. Effeminacy doesn't start when an effeminate man gets in bed with another man. Now, in terms of God's law, and I think maybe this is important for us to bring out, because God's law is a total law. Someone who, in a godly society, is guilty of any of these sins, God's law prescribes a legal, judicial means by which a person would be brought to justice, and that includes the testimony of at least two witnesses. So, in terms of the mechanics of the practice of the punishment of a sin, such as homosexuality or adultery or idolatry, uh, you know, th th there is a, quote, safeguard that someone does not uh, fall victim of um, some sort of trap or, or something like that. But there's a much greater sin, and that's what this is getting at, is that it's the sin of the heart. It's the inclination, because that is the genesis. That's the fire that starts the actual physical action that could lead to being condemned. And when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you have heard it said, but I say that if you lust after a woman, and I suppose we could put in parentheses, or a man, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So maybe no one else knows it, but if you don't call it a sin, if you give it a special category of favor, then what you're doing is you're telling someone this is not something you have to repent of. This is not repentable because this is who you are. Now, we live in a day where if your skin color is white, you're supposed to be guilty of being white, even though you had no control over what color your skin would be. We want people not to be responsible for what they think and what they lust after. After all, the 10th commandment is sort of a catch-all commandment that says, we've already told you you're not supposed to kill, you're not supposed to steal, you're not supposed to commit adultery. Now the triune God is telling us that we're not even supposed to want these things. And this goes back to, Charles, a point he makes in the book, and I think it's worthy of discussion. What does the mortification of sin mean? We're not to tolerate sin. We're not to, you know, hold its hand and look both ways before we cross the street. We're supposed to mortify it. What does that mean? Well, it means to, to put it to death. Uh, it, it means to give it the death sentence. You know, the, the, the word more, mort or whatever from the Latin is built into the meaning of, uh, that word mortification. And, 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 you know, it's a lifelong struggle. It certainly is. And so we have to walk, I think, a fine line. It's just my opinion 
between that personal struggle, regardless of what the, the tendency or the, the sinful inclination may be, and it, it is a full-time job, but we have to balance that between the, the other responsibility we have as followers of Christ and members of his kingdom, and that is to help expand the kingdom, to make the nations his disciples. And this has been one side of, a, of this problem that we're talking about, is that people have gone off into a type of full-time pietism. We've got to fight the battle on all fronts. Uh, and, and, and it's important to say, fight the battle on all fronts, not just sort of give slack off here so we can concentrate over there. It's, it's a difficult task. But the Lord has called us to be perfect as he's perfect, and he's promised us his Holy Spirit so that we can be successful in that endeavor. So let's be clear. Temptation is real, but that's not the same as lusting after something, okay? You can be confronted with something that you could do that was wrong. This may sound like a silly example, but there are times where I go to the grocery store and I have things in my cart, and then I leave not being sure if the checker saw the stuff that I had on the bottom. And in my heart, I can say, well, I don't want to go back. I'm already running late. And besides, prices cost too much anyway. I do a lot of shopping here. And then I stop myself. And I believe this is the Holy Spirit saying, thou shalt not steal. So I go back and the person says, oh, no, I got it. I got that. That If you look at your receipt, you'll see it's on it. And other times it's like, no, I didn't do it. But, you know, you didn't have to come back. Well, yes, I did. So if we can't govern our thoughts, our words, and our deeds on small things, how are we going to do it on big things? And I think the whole idea of those prominent men in the church who have gone soft on homosexuality or effeminacy, and we find out that there's someone in their family that is a you know a homosexual, lesbian, transgender, or whatever, and then instead of saying, wow, that person compromised on God's law, we say, they're building bridges. Oh, really? Do we build bridges into a burning building and we go in there? No, we don't. We try to rescue people out of them and have them come out of the burning building. What's going on now is we want everybody to be comfortable. And I don't want to offend anybody who's in this burning building. You know, um, it may be the limitations of my age. I don't know. But it's just hard for me to comprehend that any, and I'll use this this word, sane person, can look at the impact of these things that we're talking about in modern culture and not be concerned. And insofar as significant numbers of people aren't that concerned, well, then, you know, we are indeed destined for more of a hell on earth than what we have right now. But that may be the way it has to be before people understand. And and it's a sign, I think, of God's covenantal judgment on a society that it's tur- that's turned its back on God's law. I mean, we have massive megachurches that, that dot the landscape. Every, and just everywhere across these United States. And what impact has it made? I, there, there's a church in, in uh, an area that I'm familiar with where they were recently planning to change the name of their church from whatever it used to be to something like uh, the Try Love Church or the Church That Loves You Church. And they're, they're doing this because, you know, it, it's a way to appeal to people. You know, they used to be... Um, the, the popular saying by one of your California preachers out there, be happy, God loves you, or something like that. Right. And I remember somebody preached a sermon to parody that called, be concerned, God may hate you. <laughs> right. And, it would, you know, both of those things are true, depending on who you are. But the problem is most people only hear about the first one. They don't hear about the second one. Right. Now, I I brought up the 10th commandment, but the second commandment here is very relevant. It's the commandment that says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, mm-hmm. right? Well, we can have an image of a godly person who is sinning, and we have a false image. And too many people have bowed to this image to the point where Christians are now on the defensive. If you say something is wrong, you have to add that qualifier that says, yes, 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 I know we're all sinners, right? It's like... When you give up ground, you can't speak 
as a vicegerent, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. We're standing on God's ground. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So when you compromise, you are a bad ambassador. You are not fulfilling your duty. And so what happens is when you have this fuzzy theology, Rush Dooney in other places refers to it as the church of the warm fuzzies, is that what happens is the church becomes an open forum for ideas rather than a place for the instruction and care of the faithful. Should the church minister to people who struggle and commit all sorts of sin? Yes, but you don't make them part of your family. The family of God is a specific thing. Those who are part of the new humanity in Jesus Christ, that's the family of God. The fact that we have imposters, well, the world has seen imposters from the very beginning. Satan was one of those imposters. And we can't assume that Adam and Eve were just stupid people. No, what he was offering was appealing in some way, shape, or form. So when we look at this and the church opens its doors and allows people in, and we're just going to discuss it, and I'm no better than the next guy, well, that's true other than if Christ is in you, if the Holy Spirit is in you, the Holy Spirit is going to testify that this is sin. So how can people say, I'm a Christian, but they continue to live in such a way that's contrary to the scripture? Then the Holy Spirit must be a liar, schizophrenic, or maybe not there at all. Yes, and the the connection that you were talking about is something else that Paul gets into in the book of Romans, chapter 1, and I mean the issue of idolatry, because there he, he links this type of behavior to that, that point. Uh, he, he says in, in Romans 1, uh, verse 24, and in discussing the exchange of the, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, he says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dis- the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And he goes on to describe, you know, male and female homosexuals in, in the ensuing verses. So these, this laundry list of sinful activities and inclinations that he, he lists in First Corinthians, all of it's related to this issue of worshiping the creature rather than the creator. It goes, like you said, right back to the fall of humanity in the garden. But we also know that in that same circumstance, Almighty God, promised a redeemer who would crush the head of Satan. And we know that to be Christ Jesus, our King. And so there is hope. There's hope for everyone who struggles with the sins of their lives. There's hope for victory over those things because we follow and believe uh, a victorious God. Can I I just just add something here, Charles? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's important that we take our marching orders from scripture. And so we look at the roles God gave men, God gave women. So there are certain things within the church that are reserved for men. When we decided that God didn't really mean that and then opened the door to other things, we stopped showing that we love God because we stopped keeping his commandments. Now, I referenced the second commandment. It says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. That's really bad news. That means that kids are going to be born because of the idolatry of their forebears. Well, we know that from we all inherited Adam's sin. But the second part is really important. But showing mercy to those who have a steadfast love, not a wishy love, not a pietistic love, a steadfast love. Someone who could look at someone who is sinning and saying, you are sinning, you're grieving the the holy God, and you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that, which will be death. See, that's steadfast love. You're upholding who your God is, and you're telling someone else, and you're treating them the way you would want to be treated. I would want to know, and I think you would too, Charles, if I made a right turn that I was going to go off a cliff, even if somebody had to slap me in the face and say, stop. And I go, well, that's not very nice. Yeah, but I didn't go off the cliff. We've got to love people enough to have them realize their rebellion against God. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, to sort of wrap things up, in addition to this fine book that 
Pastor Mathis has written, I would recommend to our uh, listeners to study the Institutes of Biblical Law, especially where Dr. Rastuni covers the Seventh Commandment. And uh, there are other places in his writings where he addresses some of these issues. And one of the most notable, in addition to what I mentioned, was his book, To Be As God, uh, which is a study of the writings and the life of the Marquis de Sade, who many of our listeners may not be familiar with, but it's an eye-opening study in things relating to the French Revolution and how sexual uh, abandon was put to the forefront and uh, people simply did what was right in their own eyes in a more modern context than in Paul's day, but it came up to be the same sort of thing. So those would be two works I would recommend. I don't know if you have others that you think about. Well, his book, Revolt Against Maturity, sort of sums up a lot of what man's problem is. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard to be mature. It's hard to be like someone who's responsible. It's much easier to blame someone else. It's much easier to put your head in the sand. But nonetheless, it's a revolt against what we're called to do. And I would say that those who don't know the struggles the early church went through in terms of producing orthodoxy will have a much harder time recognizing heresy in their midst. And if you're attending a church that basically tells you some of God's sins or some of the sins that God's word says are not as bad and and you don't have to worry about them because, you know, you're in Christ, you're no longer condemned. Paul's very specific. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not in Christ Jesus if you're at war with him. And so I think that's our message. People are committing treason in thought, word, or deed. And it's our job as God's representatives here who have been given the instruction to disciple the nations to point that out. Because if we won't tell them, who will? Good question. And we are enjoined by the Lord to do just that. And um, I think one means by which this message has been going forth now for quite a few years is that of the Chalcedon Foundation and especially the excellent website where our listeners can find many of the resources concerning Dr. Rastuni's works um, in particular. And, you know, the revamped website that's been up now for a while, it's very easy to locate. You can just simply type in a term like effeminacy or uh, gay or adultery or whatever it may be, and it will bring up a whole plethora of articles relating to that topic by Dr. Rastuni and others. Okay. Sean Mathis, S-H-A-W-N, Mathis, M-A-T-H-I-S, is the church pro-gay. And let me just end this before I close with, he makes it clear that God is not pro-gay. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you reach us. And we look forward to you joining us next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.